Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. I love how, Paul, when you pray, when you say the, 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 the word that the Lord has given us, and I just think of that. Every time I'm digging into it, I just think these are this is what God wanted us to know about him uh, and what an honor and what a privilege to do it. So it's been two weeks when we did Deuteronomy 1 and 2. Tonight we're going to start in Deuteronomy 3, and it starts in verse 1. Then we turned up and went the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to the battle at Edre. And the Lord said to me, Don't fear him, for I've delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt uh, at Heshbon. So the Lord our God has also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. We took all his cities at that time, and there was not a city which we did not take for them. Sixty cities, and all the region of Argob, the region of Og and Bashan, and all these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns, and we utterly destroyed them as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. So King Og was defeated back in Numbers 21. This is a reference back to there. We are still with Grandpa Moses sitting down, reminding this new generation uh, as they sit at the river Jericho, ready uh, at the river Jericho, looking at the um, the river Jordan, looking at the city of Jericho. Um, he's talking to this new generation and giving them kind of words of encouragement, saying, "Look at all these things that have been done in the past." Og controlled the lands east of the Jordan, and Moses is reminding them, "Look at all these battles we won against Og." So things to remember from chapter one was that they were in chains. Uh, then they were lost in their wanderings. And then in chapter 2, Moses was showing them that we had victory over all these other people, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites. And here we see the same kind of pattern continuing. And you had victory over these people. Uh, notice that he points out that they too had high walls, which is kind of a reference to, uh, in verse 5, it says they were high walls, gates, and bars like Jericho has. Um, and he's pointing out, like, look, we've already beat cities with walls. We've beat cities with giant people. We've beat cities with... Um, that were strongholds, and the Lord has delivered them all into our hands. Um, so a lot of times I think when we feel lost or when we feel like we're wandering, it's good for us to remember what God's done in the past um, so that he, we know he can do it in the present and that he's never going to forsake us in the future. Uh, so we look to God, we wait on God, and we praise God in those moments. So in Numbers 13, that fear of giants that was unfounded, uh, was laid out as the people ran away from this region, and now Moses is reminding them not to be fearful of giants again. Verse 8, And at that time we took the land from the hand of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, who were on this side of the Jordan, from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. Uh, the Sidonians call Mount Hermon Syrian, like that. 
and the Amorites call it Sinir, and all the cities of the plain, all Gilead, all Bashan. These are, by the way, all very beautiful areas, gorgeous areas. These, this is why uh, we had two and a half tribes that wanted to stay in this territory once they took it over. As far as Salka and Adri, the cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, for only Og, king of Bashan, remained at the of the for only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants, and indeed his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Uh, is it not in Rabbah of the people of Arnon? Nine cubits or fourteen feet long is its length, and four cubits is its width. So not only is he tall, but he's also thick, according to the standard cubit. Uh, Moses again saying, remember, we run these victories. The bedstead here is a Hebrew word that's kind of tricky because there aren't a lot of uses of it. Some people believe it's an actual bed, but why would you take a bed and move it to another location? Other people, I think, more accurately believe that the bed is actually a grave or where he was laid as a grave. So Moses is referencing the size of Og, king of Bashan, um, or for the, as this... Uh, as this giant, one of these people that are kind of these remnants of these people that were these massive people. Um, and not only has he been beaten, but he's in the grave and he, they can go and reference that grave. Uh, if you want the reference to the giants or where the Bible claims a lot of these giants came from, Genesis 6-4 uh, says that they were kind of an unnatural mating between spiritual forces and humans, and they were never really part of God's plan. And throughout the Bible, these giants keep popping up as people that stand against or in conflict with Israel. They don't seem to be in conflict necessarily with Edom, Ammon. Uh, so these other nations that are not God's chosen nations don't seem to have a lot of problems with these Rephaim or these giants. Um, oops. Are you going to make yourself uh, here? Hold on. Let me just pause and do that. Okay. So the other reference, by the way, Danny and uh, um uh, Britta, we're, we're through verse 11. Uh, Deuteronomy 2.11 made reference to the Anakims or the Emims or the Zamzumims, which is the same great group of great large people. And it's interesting in verse 11 how we actually get some size to that, that these people were 14 feet tall uh, or, or large. And, and, and on a battlefield, you would be scared of somebody that size, especially if they were thick. Uh, Joshua 13.12 has this kingdom gone, but there's groups of them that are scattered around and it still references them even up until David, when David kills Goliath, who would have been another one of these Anakims, uh, these large giant people that lived in the world. So Israel has been walking past cousins or other people that were natural descendants, but as they run into these people, these people attack the Israelites. So these are not people that God wants to have remaining on the earth and, and he's going to use Israel as its tool to get rid of them. So in verse 12, and this land which we possessed at that time from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, and half the mountains of Gilead and its cities, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan and the kingdom of Og I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All the region of Argob with all Bashan was called in the land of the giants. Jer, the son of Manasseh, took the region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Mahakathites and called Bashan after his own name, Havas Jer, to this day. Also, I gave Gilead to Makar, and the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave from Gilead as far as the river Arnon, the middle of the river as a border, as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the people of Arnon, the plain also with the Jordan as the border from Chinnereth, which is the Sea of Galilee, 
as far as the east side of the Sea of Arba, which we today call the Dead Sea, uh, below to the slopes of Pisgah. So we're getting right up to the edge. Essentially, those two and a half tribes get the land east of the Jordan. It's good grazing land. It's a nice place. Two thoughts, because we're going through a lot of town names and a lot of places. Most of these town names have not been dug up or we haven't found a lot of them. The ones that have been found have been found exactly where the Bible says they should be, uh, which has archaeology often using the Bible as a reference point as to where to find these cities, which makes for really boring Bible study. But kind of one thought to take away from that is how accurate all of this is, is that it creates, again, a fingerprint for the validity of history that even today we can do archaeology and find things exactly where the Bible says they will be. And when it draws borders according to these immovable locations, it makes it easier for archaeologists to do their job, which again, just continues every generation we get new kind of findings. And if you don't subscribe to Biblical Archaeology Review, to me that's just one of the wonderful magazines where they'll take obscure passages like this and then they'll go do archaeology and then they'll find the ruins of the Bashanites and uh, they'll start doing new archaeology and finding new groups of people. And I would say every 10 to 20 years, there's some new discovery, and there has been for 100 years since the British owned this part of the world, uh, where they've been able to dig up and find these kinds of things. And some of the nations around Israel are even friendly to this kind of archaeology today. Um, Obviously, Jordan is one of those uh, countries that does allow some of that. And uh, we've been able to open up new doors every time we get Uh, peaceful uh, relationships with those countries where we can do more archaeology and find more validity for the Bible. Um, And as as of this point, they haven't found a lot or dug up a lot that would conflict with any of this. And for me, that's just a faith-affirming kind of thought. Uh, Deuteronomy, this is why Deuteronomy gets attacked by Bible critics, is that they'll read this and say, well, we don't know where Machir is, therefore this is a problematic text. Um, The problem with that approach is that it puts a lot of burden on the text like the Bible that we don't put on any other text. Uh, If you just read it and assume that that's a city that we've lost, then it's not really problematic at all. Um, Moses then is repeating how he writes things. Um, This is a recounting, uh, which is another version of what we saw in the book of Numbers, and Moses has very different purposes in what he's recounting. In Deuteronomy, remember, he's giving a contract that the people would have with their king, um, so it's a, he's still putting this in here as what the king has done for the people, um, but he's not putting it in here as any kind of authoritative text uh, other than a contract between a king and its people, where Numbers was more of a historical recounting. That shows how important Deuteronomy is, is that Deuteronomy then verifies everything we see in Numbers. So when you see those pieces where you have two different texts, um, And the Bible is a collection of different texts. Numbers and Deuteronomy are different scrolls. They're not the same book. Um, But they're put into the Bible in part because they validate each other uh, and they show authority. Um, Both books then gain authority because you have two different documents that show the same stories from the ancient world. Um, And Deuteronomy becomes very important and very central for that reason. As it gives this recounting, it builds up other books. And as we start to get to the prophetic parts of Deuteronomy, it actually says what what's going to happen. And then later on, we see books written much later where things actually happen the way that they were said to happen in Deuteronomy. So higher critics, the, the ivory tower folks, can sometimes miss that, that people can write in multiple formats because they'll accuse Moses of writing numbers differently than he wrote the book of Deuteronomy, um, which is a problem because... 
people even today can write in different formats. I can write a journalistic piece, but I can also write an op-ed piece, and I can also write fiction. So humans can often write in multiple formats, and I have no idea why higher critics would critique a book like Deuteronomy because it's written somewhat differently than Numbers was written. Um, I think it's just a different kind of document that Moses is writing. Uh, that seems to be the Occam's razor, the easiest possible explanation. Seems to make a lot of sense. Um, so we see a lot of that uh, um, at that time going on, which we'll see in verse 18. Then I commanded you at that time saying, uh, which is Moses in retrospect. He says it in verse 18, verse 21, verse 23. There's going to be pieces here where Moses is basically doing a recounting or a retelling of things. That doesn't necessarily, and maybe most of you didn't get into some of this higher criticism, that to me isn't a reason to discount Deuteronomies at, at all. I, in fact, to me, it's a reason to accept the fact that Moses, as a, a guy sitting in a desert tent for most of his days, would have plenty of time to write and would actually write things in different kinds of ways. So verse 18 is Moses talking. Then I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this piece of, to, of land to possess. All you men of valor, valor shall cross over before your brother, brethren, the children of Israel. This is from Numbers 32. God gave them what they wanted. They got the land on the east of the Jordan, but they have to go fight with the Israelites when they move into the land. Verse 19, but your wives, your little ones, your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall stay in your cities, which I have given you, until the Lord has given rest to your brothers as to you. And they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to the possession which I will have given you. <clears throat> Just for context, that means that they're going to go fight with the Israelites for seven years with Joshua as their general. Uh, and they're going to be away from their families and their stuff for about seven years total. Um, the word possession here is not the same word, the one that we see in verse 20. Not the same word as inheritance. God gives it to them as a possession, but it's not the inheritance. It's not what he intended to give them in the first place. So possession implies only stuff in the Hebrew, where inheritance implies also a spiritual kind of gift that, that people get to. Verse 21, And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done. To these two kings, so will the Lord do all to the, to the kingdoms through which you pass. You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. Again, a great verse to put on a t-shirt, you know, turn and take your journey and the Lord your God himself fights for you. Um, so Moses has just come into that point of be strong, be courageous. God's plan is moving forward. God's leading. God's clearly given them a direction. Um, verse chapters one and two were not in action. They were not presumption. They would be doing things according to God's plan, if we remember that. <clears throat> and this fear of giants is actually foolish in context, because God has beat those giants multiple times. No need to be scared of them. Just be clear-eyed, move forward, trust in Jesus. So there's a rhetorical rationale here. First, God commands through Moses. Verse 18, I commanded you. So... <clears throat> I don't know, just thinking of our own lives today, how do we know what God has commanded of us? Because wouldn't it be nice if we could have Grandpa Moses say to us, and I commanded you at that time, you should have done this. And then we go to the Bible and you say, okay, what does God actually tell us to do? And if we're looking at ourselves like we want to be like the Israelites, how do we move forward doing what we've been told to do? 
So there's a super simple version of this. And these are the verses we memorize. Get to know God before presuming that God has told you to do anything. So in Numbers 28, 29, I love those chapters. God reminds them you're supposed to have a relationship with them that starts with daily devotions, weekly Bible study, monthly festivals, and holidays with all the people in the nation. Where all four of those give glory to God. So they're told that's what they're expected as a nation. Hosea 12, 6, you guys know this one's on my wall. Observe mercy and justice. Wait continually for, for God and, and, and walk how he asks you to walk. Um, 12 times in Deuteronomy, it says to love the Lord your God throughout the book. This is manifested in his commandments. So we're told what to do because God's actually given commandments to his people. Do these things and don't do these things. Matthew 22:37, Mark 12:30, Luke 10:27 all have the same story where Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. That's not an action. And it's not presumption. It's just love. And I think sometimes when we're told God's commanded you to do something and you need to just do it, especially when we're looking at things in life that are ahead of us and in front of us, and we think, what should we do, Lord? How should we make these decisions? We can go back to his word and it tells us exactly what we should be doing. We should be doing devotion. We should observe mercy and justice and wait on our God continually until we're actually told to do something. So we're not inactive. That's a bunch of things we're supposed to be doing every day. So when people say, I don't know what God's commanded me to do, and then they're not doing the things they're supposed to be doing, there's a disconnect there. If we love him, then he works. Psalms 46.10, be still and know that I'm God. So when we don't know what God's saying to us, one thing to do is just be still and listen and pray and read his word and be abiding with God for as long as we can and let God be enough in our life. Let him be the fulfillment that we're supposed to have. Listen to how great servants of God express this idea in the Bible. Psalm 119.27, Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I shall meditate on your wonderful works. When not knowing what to do for God, we can sit and literally memorize and meditate on everything God's done in history and God's already done in our own lives. Isaiah 25.1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. When not knowing what we're commanded to do, we can literally just sit and praise the Lord's name and praise him for what he's done and wait on his Lord. So in verses 21, 22, here's the breakdown. Moses says, your eyes have seen it. So that's a rhetorical explanation of what he's doing here. If you've seen it and the Bible talks about it, the Bible actually goes with our own experience too. So if we're believers, I hope there's been at some point in our life, we've seen God move or we felt God move in our own heart. So your eyes have seen it, verse 21. So will the Lord do it. God's promise is that he'll continue to do the things he's already started. And if God's full of total power and authority, then you must not fear is the next piece of logic that Moses has in that verse. That seems to be the moral of the story. So the Lord, your God himself fights for you. We don't fear because God does all of our fighting. God has all power. He's already won and he's promised to win. And when he wins, it's all about his glory and his, and, and, and his will being done. We've seen it before. He's promised he'll do it again. We wait on the Lord. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's the commandment. Verse 21, and I commanded Joshua at that time saying, your eyes have seen all that the Lord is, your God has done to these two kings. 
so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. Joshua gets the task. He's talking to Joshua, not the people of Israel. And his job is to not fear. God's past faithfulness in small things is the key to victory in big things. So there's no such thing. And this is one of the things I struggle with. I remember being in college and we studied Soren Kierkegaard and his meek defense of philosophical Christianity, uh, which Christianity comes to a point of faith. And he makes this argument that at some point the Christian has to take a leap of faith. You have to step into things that you can't deconstruct philosophically. And I don't know that the Bible says that at all. Soren Kierkegaard says that. But the Bible gives this logic that we see in verse 21 and 22, that we've already experienced things. And we see that the Bible has a record of things that have already happened. That's not blind faith. That's not a leap of faith. That's trusting that what the writers of the Bible said was what they experienced. And it's trusting that what's happened already in my own heart is something I've experienced. Those are two very valid things. And you bring two or more witnesses and you can go to a courtroom with that under Jewish law. So these experiences that we have are an anchor or a reference point for our faith that lasts our whole lives, not just for a little bit. And every time we see God work or do things, that's a new anchor point that continues to give us more and more strength in the faith to move forward. Thus, the importance of sharing what God's doing in your life every week with the body of believers or with a small group or with a church where you're sharing those things, then you have the experiences of other people to further anchor your faith. It gives you a boldness. It's not a creaking, it's not spidey sense. It's none of those kinds of things. It is the actual tasting and seeing. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, blessed is the man who trusts him. We don't trust God in blind faith. We trust God in the rooted experiences of our own lives and the lives that, of others that we live with. And that's not blind at all. Um, I sit on a chair because I believe it'll hold my weight. And that's based on past experience and the experience of other people that I can watch sit in that chair. So that's not blind faith to sit in the chair. It's using rooted experience to do that. So Moses is then forbidden to enter the, the promised land. And he says in verse 23, Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you've begun to show your servant your, great, your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works or your mighty deeds? So Moses models what we just saw, what, we, what he was just saying that they should do. So he's saying they should meditate on these things and they should be, have faith and not fear. And then he shows them what that looks like. Verse 25, I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains in Lebanon. You hear in verse 25, just this kind of, pain that Moses has that he can't get to see this land that God's done so many good things and he can see God moving with these people and he can see what's going to happen next but he doesn't get to go there with them he has to send them out on their own so after 40 years Moses knows that God could back off and let him see the land so he prays for it uh, he can do anything he wants um, and he's watched God forgive and he's watched God do it before so he's he's praying in verse 25 for something that God said he can't have. But the Lord was angry with me on your own account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more of me. <laughs> Speak no more to me of this matter. Sometimes when God says no and we keep asking for it, um, we get uh, God gets angry. Abar in the Hebrew is the word. Uh, abar isn't our kind of angry. It's a different Hebrew word. Uh, it means to be taken away with someone or to be over somebody. So it's basically like 
uh, after Steph has made her point and we are in a heated husbandly wifely argument and at some point I'll just say, I think I hear what you're saying. I think we need to just be done with this issue and we can move forward. Um, and God's saying that to Moses. It connotes a fury or a, an anger, but it doesn't always have that tone. It just means to be passed with somebody, just to be done with something. Um, he's tired of talking about it with Moses. So Moses is a great leader, is held to that standard. Uh, he did back in Numbers 20, ruined an image of Christ, the rock of our salvation, that we can go to him and we can speak a word and then we can thirst no more. But instead of going and speaking to the rock like God asked Moses to do, Moses went up and struck the rock multiple times. So Moses messed up this image of the rock producing water. Um, and it's uh, still written in God's word. So we see that that image is there um, and we see how God still could use it. Uh, but he, God, I think, wanted a lot cleaner uh, image in, 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 that, in that part of the Bible. And Moses wrecked it. So his actions were public, his actions were representative of God, and his punishment then is public. The whole nation gets to see that Moses doesn't get to go in the land, and the whole nation sees that Moses' representation of God was flawed at that moment. So unlike most other ancient texts, the hero of our text actually has a flaw, a major flaw, that makes it so he is not getting everything he wants from God. Uh, in, in prayer, God always will answer. And I think I said this two weeks ago too. God will answer yes, no, or he'll say wait. Uh, and Isaiah 30, 18 says, blessed are those who wait, on, wait upon the Lord. When we wait on God, we're actually doing what God's asked us to do sometimes. So the question then is, can we accept that? When God says to wait, are we okay to wait? When God says to go, do we go? When God says not to go, do we not go? So in Numbers 1 and 2, we are reminded of stories where uh, Israel didn't go when they were told to go. They did go when they were told not to go. And then we see an example here where Moses was told to wait on something, um, to hold back his staff from striking the rock, and he didn't do it. So later Moses is going to be in the Holy Land, and we should know that. Uh, God actually does give him that, and you're saying, what, wait? Um, you have to go way forward into the New Testament, Matthew 17, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. There's two people that show up next to Jesus Christ, Elisha and Moses. And here's the cool thing. That happened in the promised land. So God actually lets Moses go into the promised land at the transfiguration. So probably uh, that would, would have been one of the things that Moses was most excited about when he was brought back to go and be with the disciples and with Jesus is that he was probably looking around thinking, this is great. I get to actually come into the Holy Land. So Moses does get to go in. It's important to kind of note that. Um, and he lives for the Lord and the Lord actually does bless him with it. But he was told to wait. He's not going to get to go in soon. So the Lord saying, enough of that. Speak no more of me to this matter is not a yes and it's not a no. Um, and it becomes absolutely true. He was just told to wait. Uh, and he had to wait a few hundred years, but he does get to go into the Holy Land later on. And I think that's kind of a sweet mercy from the Lord that he gives to Moses. Um, verse 27, go up to the top of Pisgah uh, and lift your eyes towards the west, the north, the south, the east, and behold it with your own eyes, for you shall not cross over the Jordan. So God again gives him the grace of being able to look at the land. Um, in, in chapter 34, verse 7, it says Moses' eyes were not dim, uh, which means he has really good vision 
and he can still see all of this. So even though he's 120 years old, God's blessed him with uh, impressive eyesight well into his old age, and he uses that in order to bless Moses. So it says he's going to go die right now, but we should also note it's going to take till chapter 34 before that happens because Moses is still going to teach them the law. So this is all during that time. The whole book of Deuteronomy happens within this kind of very short period of time where Moses reminds them of the law. Verse 28, but command Moses and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go over before this people and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you see. So we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. They're waiting because God says to wait. And he's going to be training Moses during, or training Joshua during this time. Uh, and we see a time of Joshua being trained. Here's a guy, Moses, that's more intimate with God than anyone on the earth that we've seen so far, even more so than Abraham. Uh, he speaks with him. He can go back into his tent and have a conversation whenever he wants to pop in. Uh, and God's there for him. And Moses is told here in verse 28, he's supposed to encourage and strengthen Joshua, the next generation. And Joshua, we shouldn't think of as a young child at this point. <coughs> Excuse me. He's only a generation behind Moses, which makes him like 90. Uh, so Joshua's kind of an old guy, and, and he gets to go and learn and be taught by Moses. Um, and it re the result of God following or Moses following God is you can see here at the end of his life contentment and grace and a willingness to hand things on. And I love that about Moses. It's not his nation, and it's not his ministry. And, and all of us that have ministries, it's not our ministry. It's God's ministry. God's made it. God's brought the people together for it. Um, and the entire book of Deuteronomy comes out of that kind of heart from Moses, is that it's just his desire to teach people and help them to move forward. Verse 1 of chapter 4, uh, Moses is going to command a little bit of obedience, and we have a transition between the history in chapters 1 through 3 into the period of the law. So he's explaining why he's going to teach them the law. Now, O Israel, notice that he's not talking to Joshua anymore, he's talking to the whole nation. Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe that you might live and go in and possess the land the Lord your God of your fathers is giving to you. So now, chapter 4 starts with the word now as a transition into this legal kind of uh, reminding them of the law because of all that God has done. The statutes here are moral laws, things that honor God. And the judgments that we see in verse 1 are civil laws, things that get judged. So we have both statutes and judgments, and they're going to go hand in hand as how they run things. Why is that? Three reasons. The land has already been given to them. It's a done deal. They didn't do anything for that land. And the reasons that we get here are these three, that you might live, that you can go in, and that you can possess. One reason to follow God's statutes is because it helps our life. It's actually a better way to live. Uh, it has immediate physical natural effect and God's statutes have a benefit to us even outside of the spiritual blessings. They're actually just a good way to live life. And if that's the case and, and they're about to go into a series of battles, following the statutes is something that implies even a spiritual benefit or a protection from the Lord over somebody's life. That you may go in is the ability to move. So if we follow God's statutes and his judgments, we actually have the ability to move in life. And I think this is just a, such a great connection to our own lives. And the third one that you might possess has the idea of enjoying something that you've already gotten. So to get something is one thing. To possess it is to enjoy the benefits of it. So why do we follow God's statutes and his judgments? Because we get better life because of it. 
we get to move for the Lord in our lives and that we can possess God's blessing that he's offered. This implies that the people of Israel may be loved by God and cared for by God, given manna from God, water from the rock from God, but never possess God's blessings and inheritance in their life. And to me, that is something that, this is something the prosperity gospel gets right. There are some elements of what God has to offer in our lives that will only be unlocked if we follow God's statutes and his judgments and we live the way God wants us to live. And in not following those things, those spiritual blessings won't be unlocked, right? So same things in Jesus. Salvation through Jesus is free. You don't have to do anything for it. It's the grace of God saying, if you want to ask for forgiveness, God's going to give it. But obedience to Jesus' life and commands gives us the ability to live life to the fullest, to act on behalf of Jesus, and to abide in the joy and abundance of Jesus Christ. What a promise! And we get that in Deuteronomy. Jesus gives us the same set of promises, right? So it's one thing to be saved, where God has redeemed and saved and captured this nation. It's another thing to be obedient to God and enjoy the blessings God has for our lives. Again, you don't have to take that on some leap of faith. Ask any of the thousands of people that have walked with the Lord for more than a year as to how the Lord repays us for our obedience and the joy that he actually gives people that follow the Lord. Or keep dabbling with impurity for the rest of your life and see that the Lord gives you none of those blessings and your life is kind of a mess and you're not able to move and act when the Lord calls you to do things. Anyways, first verse of Deuteronomy 4. Second verse, you shall not add to the word which I commanded you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Another power verse that Moses throws in here. Direct from God to man is the Bible itself. This is a key idea. The word, the word is the key. The word here is singular. You shall not add to the word which I commanded you, even though at the point Moses is writing this, it's an incomplete document. So the only thing that's referenced to Moses or, or when he's writing this, the only thing he's probably referencing is about what he's about to tell them in the book of Deuteronomy, which is why Jewish people escalate the book of Deuteronomy pretty highly, is that this is the summary or the teaching of the law. A teacher training teachers here is saying the right thing. Basically, keep fidelity. So, and I like this as a teacher that once trained teachers, if you're given something to teach, then don't add to it and don't take away from it. Teach the topic you're supposed to teach. Teach what you've been given things to teach. So don't teach things that aren't in the Bible and don't skip things that you personally take issue with in the Bible. Teach it all or don't teach the Bible. Um, again, this is presumption and inaction. Presumption is to add things to the Bible Inaction is to not teach things that are in the Bible, and we're supposed to be just obedient to God in doing those things. So adding to the Bible <laughs> is happens all over the place. It's basically ascribing human philosophy and human cultural trends to what the Bible says clearly to do and not do. And virtually you see this everywhere. It's part of why we're doing this Bible study is we just want to learn what the Bible has to say and how we don't add to the word which Moses commands us. Uh, we see this in different contexts too. We see this in the thousands of editions of the Bible that come out. Uh, we see this in, in Bible guides and Bible studies that aren't actually the Bible. They're a book about the Bible um, where we add things like that. We see the taking away happening all over in the church right now. 
uh, where people ignore certain passages, they explain it away. Uh, I was just listening to a Christian music band and they explained salvation as come to Jesus and he'll give you everything you want, um, which is a convenient taking away from the fact that there has to be repentance uh, in that before all that grace pours out all over you, is that you should come to the Lord ready to submit your life to the Lord and then the Lord forgives you and gives you all those things. So skipping moral standards, Christians do this all the time. We're okay with all of these things that make us think we're good people, but when it comes to actually doing things that are high moral standards or living a life of purity, we just kind of skip those parts. And that would be what Moses calls taking away from what he's about to teach them. Just do what it says. It's not just an Old Testament Deuteronomy idea. This idea is clearly repeated in the New Testament. I'll give you that example. Revelation 22:18. Been reading a lot of Revelation lately. For I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in the book. And if any man takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written on this book. Do you think God puts his word up on a pedestal? Absolutely. God's word is sacred and you don't mess with it. That you may live is an example that Moses gives of that. Why do you do this? So that you might live. Verse 3. I will move faster through Deuteronomy 4, but the first two verses were awesome. I had to slow down a little bit on those. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. Remember that was the Moabite women, the sexual idols and worship. Basically the Israelite men were getting into impure behaviors at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor, but you who held fast, the word held fast there means to cleave, to run and grab something for your dear life. Like when you're hanging off a cliff and all you got left to hold on to is a rope. That's cleaving. That's to hold fast to the Lord your God. You are alive today, every one of you. So Moses' example in verse 3 is a serious literal example. Because you cleaved to the Lord instead of ran off with the Baal Peor worship, uh, you're still actually alive today and you're not dead. Um, so that you may go in is the repetition here that we see that he's going to go in. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go in to possess. So again, not only because you can live in verse 4, but in verse 5, he's repeating himself. And it gives it so that you can act according to them. So if you follow them, you actually get the ability to act. This is, a, Jesus points out the importance of the heart. It's not just believing things, it's actually doing them too. The problem is, we as humans don't really have the spiritual strength to do things that are holy unless we start practicing in our heart what the Lord asks us to do. God develops us in a, a heart in us that's able to conquer sin. He develops in us a heart and a, and a will to do things that are good works that are coming from a place of love versus just doing things so that we do them. Verse 6, Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people in the sight of all the people. Again, Moses is repeating himself. It's not only to live, it's also to act, and then it's so that you can possess. Remember, those were the three things. 
And in chat in verse six, we come back to that possession idea. Possessing and enjoying the benefits of God makes it so other people look at your nation, look at your Bible study, look at your family, and they say, wow, these people are understanding and wise. And it's not anything that you do. It's everything God does in you that makes it so other people can see them. And Israel then can be a light on a hill that shines out for the whole world. That's the hope for Israel. That's what God's doing here in the first place. If they live pure lives, God blesses them and other people see it. And other people then come into a respect and a worship of the God of the universe. Verse seven, for what great nation is there that God is so near to it? as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him. And what a great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all the law which I shall set before you this day. I love how Moses sets up his teaching. Like the reason I'm going to teach you the law, well, and first of all, he's got to know that there's 12-year-olds that are not excited to sit down in the camp to hear the law all afternoon. So he's telling them why it's important to learn the law so that things can go well with you. God's purpose for Israel has not changed. It's to be a model for the world in two ways. And the two ways listed here are nearness or prayer and holiness lifestyle. So one, God wants to be close to us in our lives as we are today living out the life of the church. God wants to be right there when you pray. And I don't know about you, but for me, there's various seasons in my life where sometimes I pray and I feel like God's just in the room with me. And I'm having a conversation right with him. There's other times I pray like it's out of duty and I, and I feel like God's just far away. And in the Psalms, you see David express the same kinds of things. Sometimes you're far away. Sometimes you're right with me. But Lord, I, I know you're always there. So when prayer is active and near, that's when we're in a place of usually of holiness. Uh, and God tells us why he comes near us or doesn't come near us. It has a lot to do with where we're at struggling with our own purity. So... One of the things that, one of the benefits of a holy lifestyle is that no matter what happens in life, God tends to help you land on your feet. Uh, and God tends to get you through those kinds of things. And when people look at that and they say, wow, why is it that the worst things in the world can happen to these Christians and they don't seem to worry about it? Why is it you can have a plague running rampant through the country and they don't spend their entire day in absolute consternation about this plague that's running through the country. Why is it bad things can happen and when they happen to me, I'm kicking my tires and throwing things across the room and Christians just shrug and say, mm, whatever the Lord's will is, and there's no rage in their heart. Why is it that Christians don't seem to despair like the rest of the world does? Why is it they don't mourn the same way that people in the world mourn? Why is it that it's so easy for them to say, oh, blessings, praise the Lord, and it seems like it just rolls off their tongue, and but for me, everything's so hard. And the answer to all of those questions for the Israelite is because God blesses their country. And the answer for all of those questions for us as Christians is because Jesus, just because Jesus. And that's why those things go good for us. So Israel stands out because of the law and the lifestyle that they live. And we stand out for the same reasons. We stand out because we have a discipline and a law in our life and because we live a life of holiness. And that's the way we control ourselves. And it baffles the world when we do that. When we set moral laws for ourselves because they're in the Bible, not because they're in some uh, written code, we actually live at a higher standard than what the law tells us we have to live at. Nobody understands why you would restrict yourself to do that. 
And I think that's such an interesting idea. We don't restrict ourselves to we get to do it. We, we want to do it because we want to be near to God in our prayers and we want to be able to move when we're told to move and we want to enjoy and possess the blessings God's given us. So we live a life of purity because God coaches us to do that over our years. Exodus 19.6 And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. It's an identical command. And God hasn't changed a bit with his plan for Israel or for us. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. Marvelous, same word that Sarah used when she says, how, how, how marvelous is our God. So we should have no doubt about our calling. The only question we should have is, are we doing what we're called to do? We start at home, we start with ourselves, we get our own house in order before we tell other people how to do their houses, obviously. But we have to, take, we have to start with ourselves. That's exactly what Moses says next, verse 9. Only take heed to yourself and digitally, digilant, diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. I, Moses says it in one sentence, which it took me 20 minutes. Um, then teach them to your, grand, your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, gather the people to me and I will let them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth that they may teach their children. What are we commanded to do? Verse 9, take heed. The Hebrew word is shamar. <coughs> Excuse me. It means to keep, to guard, or protect something. To be on guard duty. When the priests of Baal Peor are right next door, you have to keep guard on yourself. I was thinking about this all week. I was even telling Steph, you can't drive down the road and see a billboard anymore <clears throat> that won't take your thoughts off the things of the world, or the things of God, I'm sorry. You can't watch a TV show anymore. We are watching a cutesy little kid's show, and there's a bunch of swearing all over in it. And I'm a big boy. I can handle swearing, but I also think, if I want to be pure, why do I even put that stuff in my head? I don't want it running through my ears and my brain. I want to meditate on things that are good and holy and pure and right and true. So to take heed or to guard something means sometimes we choose what's going to go through our head and what's not. And we live in a world that is absolutely rife with people doing whatever they want to do and whatever's right in their own eyes. And it's one of those challenges where Christians have to be taking heed and then diligently, mehode, muchness, is the Hebrew word. Diligently is exceedingly diligent about something. So we take heed and diligently keep ourselves holy. Uh, diligently there is an intense superlative word. It means, in other words, super lots, tons in the English. Take heed to yourself and super lots, tons keep yourself. So what are we commanded to do? First and foremost, we're commanded to take care of our own brains and take care of how we live and what we do. What we choose to remember, verse 9, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. What we choose to remember is how we keep our brain. So there's two very specific commands here. Take heed 
And then the next one is to teach. We can't teach people things we haven't seen. We can't teach things we don't know. So in absence of knowing anything, we can just teach the word of God because God said it and we can put faith in that. We can trust it because we've seen in our own life that God is active and real and doing things. And if we haven't seen that yet in our life, get involved in a church that's alive or be involved in a Bible study that studies the word and just wait until you see what God's doing. Moses, is, however, doesn't have to do that. Moses has watched God work over the last 40 years in ways that were unlike anything the world had ever seen. And his recommendation to the grandkids is they need to remember those things and teach them to their grandkids too. Thus, we have a Bible with all these stories in it uh, because they were told to keep these things and do that. Likely, Jesus was around 30 years old when he started teaching. This wasn't because he wasn't the son of God. For 30 years, he didn't necessarily start teaching, not because he was imperfect, but because even in his perfection, his practice had to be validated with his words. It wasn't worth teaching anything until he had lived a life that other people respected and could see that he's actually lived what he's taught. So this idea of teaching is something that comes after we take heed to ourselves. Once you have your own house in order, then you can teach other people how to order their houses because you know how to keep an ordered house. And then you have something to offer your children and your grandchildren. God actually acts through generations. He acts through the family structure and he acts through parents teaching kids. Uh, And it's one of the great blessings that we have is that in every church community, there's multiple generations and the older ladies should be teaching the younger ladies and the older men should be teaching the younger men. And, and, And we see throughout the Bible that there's this idea that older generations should be teaching younger generations. And that should happen throughout history. Verse 25, don't teach them idolatry, teach them these things instead. Teach them the things that God has told you to teach. So we have that kind of idea. So we get to choose what we teach our kids. And without being too offensive, okay, I'll just be offensive. We can teach them Bible stories or we can teach them Disney stories. We can teach them biblical law or we can teach them human law. We can teach them words that the Bible says or we can watch the news every day in front of our children. So we have choices as to what's going on in our household and how much of that needs to go on with our kids. And I I can say for Steph and I, not that it was, you know, you've met Grant and Katie. I don't know how perfect this was. We didn't even turn on a TV set till Grant was five years old because he didn't need any of that in his head growing up. Uh, And then we turned it on very sparingly because we'd rather be studying the word or doing the works of God or serving other people than doing much of the things that the world has in front of us, no matter how much those things get riled up. Verse 11. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire in the midst of heaven with darkness, cloud and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, and you heard the sounds of the words, but you saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which cross over to possess. Not Moses talking, but the whole nation is able to hear what God said. Uh, At that time, if they are about 2 million people, estimates show that there was 
really only about 20 million people on the earth at this period in history, if you just kind of go back by birth rates. So this is the equivalent of one-tenth of the people on the planet heard God talk directly from the cloud. And Moses is reminding them, you don't have to trust what I said. You heard what God said through the cloud. We wrote it down in a Bible. So in the future, even people in Minnesota can hear what God said from the cloud. Moses is teaching because the Lord commanded him to, nothing short of that. <clears throat> he was commanded by God to teach, verse 14. And the claim of this passage is that Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers were all then written directly by God, um, which is one of those kind of spiritual claims about the Bible, is that the claim here is that God said these things and then they were recorded. And the Lord spoke to you, a claim that the listeners heard. This is internally validating text. Anybody who read Deuteronomies or heard Moses speak would have been able to deny that they heard something from a cloud. Yet this, instead of denying it and having a challenged book when it was first written, this book was held and cherished by the people of Israel, which is completely validating that what was said in these verses is something everybody agreed with, that they heard God speak from a cloud. So this is completely unique, and I don't want to just read over this at all. When he says, you came near, and he talks to an entire nation of people saying, you heard this, that's completely self-validating because it's easily refuted. Anyone can refute with their own experience. But when an entire nation of people confirm with their own experience, that's something we need to take heed with. So if God did not speak to Moses, and Moses came out and said that God spoke to him, it'd be very hard to refute that. And in fact, most of the other major religions of the world have an individual person that say they talk to God, and we're all supposed to just believe that that happened. Uh, Buddha, Confucius, Joseph Smith, Muhammad, you know, secret golden tablets that, oops, disappeared, those kinds of things. It's, for me, that's such a huge, massive act of faith in a human being that it would be very hard for me to believe or buy into any religion that has an individual saying that God talked to them directly. Moses doesn't make that claim at all, and that's what's utterly compelling about Judaism. Moses' claim was, you all heard the same thing I did, people. We had a unified experience. So either they had mass hysteria, where everyone had the exact same illusion at the same time, which I think is totally impossible, or they actually heard from an almighty God from the top of a mountain and then carefully wrote down what he said. If God didn't speak to the people, it would have been easy for any one individual to completely refute it. It would have been an emperor's no not wearing his clothes thing. The living, alive, contemporary re reader would have said, eh, I don't really believe any of this stuff. And the only other religion that then is fully public or an act in history is fully witnessed by large groups of people, the only other religion that does that is Christianity where Jesus comes and, it, and manifests himself and rises from the dead and talks to massive groups of people before he is uh, 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 lifted up and resurrected into to heaven. So you have these two religions, Judaism and Christianity, that stand out amongst all the others through an absolute human act that's witnessed by tons of people. And for Judaism, at least, these verses, verse 11, verse 12, and the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, is one of those passages that that's the hinge point of this entire faith. So highlight it, circle that chapter, that, that paragraph. That's an absolute amazing text. Verse 15, again, take careful heed. Same as verse 9, same as what we're going to see in verse 23. 
to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure of the likeness of male or female. God was pretty deliberate about not taking a form, and Moses is pointing that out. Points it out in verse 3, verse 9. The likeliness of any animal that's on the earth or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth, like Nineveh with the fish slappers. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars and all the host of heaven and you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the people under the whole heaven as a heritage. So... Verses 15 through 19, we read as just a list of things not to worship. All of the listeners of this original piece would have been knowing that Moses was referring to Egyptian religion. He, in a very short summary, takes all of the idol pagan gods of the Egyptian religion and wraps them up. Um, it's easy to dismiss worshiping birds and animals and creepy things and fish and sun. And we don't do a lot of that because of our Judeo-Christian heritage and because of that impact on our culture. But remember, these things were absolutely connected to aspects of human life. When the Egyptians worshiped these folks, they were worshiping an aspect of human life that went with them. So Isis represented something to the Egyptian people and paganism represents something to people. So you worship something because you like what it stands for. So pick your favorite Marvel superhero. What you like about your favorite Marvel Marvel superhero is not just that they're modeled after Greek and Roman gods. What you like is what they stand for or the kind of personality they have or the way in which they approach problems, right? Uh, if you want to get back into the Egyptian stuff, you can go back and listen to the Exodus 7 teaching. I dig into that uh, when they had the plagues. But a real short version of that, the Egyptians had a god for everything. They had Ra, which went with the sun, which had to do with life and creation. You worshipped Ra, one of their most powerful gods. For the moon, they had Allah, uh, which is why there's a crescent moon on the the Muslim uh, flag, is that uh, the moon god Allah was Bastet, uh, uh, had to do with cats, which had to do with joy and mothering and cosmetics. Uh, basically vanity. Uh, there's Osiris, which was the god of the crops, which had to do with uh, living a long life and, and being healthy for a long time and eating your vegetables and enjoying good uh, alcoholic beverages. They had Thoth or Ibis, which was wisdom and academics and science. Uh, so the Egyptians worshipped academics. They had the sky god Isis, which was, uh, had to do with the kingship or politics. They worshipped uh, political things that were going on. Everybody has a form of a god. They have something they worship. People are wired to worship. And Moses is warning them, take heed, take careful heed. You don't start to worship these things just like the Egyptians did. So when we read something like, don't worship an animal, he's referring to Bastet. Don't worship the cat god and start worshiping cats and start doing eye makeup like cats have eye makeup around their eyes. Don't do that. Vanity is not something to pursue. Academics is not something to pursue. Politics, living a long life, power and creation uh, and being in tune with the earth. Uh, these, these ideas are things that are easy for people to start to worship, even if we don't have Egyptian gods that we attach to them. 
we can still worship those things. We don't make gods. Uh, God really made us, and that's the essence of Judaism, what God's trying to teach the people. You don't get to take a form and make God into a form because you can reduce a form into something you created. And God never gave them a form, so they never had something they could create and put an image with. When we make a cross and hang it around our neck, we don't worship the cross. And most Christians really understand that idea. We don't worship it because it's not a form that we're worshiping. It's a reminder of what Christ did for us on the cross, that we worship the actions of God. We don't have a photograph because Jesus showed up before cameras. So we don't have a picture we can hang on our wall necessarily. But humans have sure made an effort to draw those pictures and start to make those things. Verse 20, but the Lord has taken you. (laughs) The Hebrew word there implies that he's taken you as a bride. Uh, And that's an image, of course, Christ uses all the time. The Lord has taken you. He's, he's, He's engaged you. And he brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan, but you shall cross over and possess that good land. I think Moses here, it's not the same tone as uh, of when he kind of prayed and, and reminded them that he asked God for it and he said no. I think here the Lord, Moses pointing this out because it's part of his message of encouragement. Just because I'm not going to go with you doesn't mean that you're not going to possess the land and you're not going to go over and inherit that. An iron furnace is, uh, it's just great writing on Moses's part when he brought you out of the iron for- furnace. This is a place where they would have made the idols from the previous verses. Iron furnaces consume people. And that's the danger of worshiping things of this world is that in essence, when we worship those things, they consume us. And most of us that have been walking in the faith know this. Uh, For me, I'll wrestle with how much I want to turn on the news. If I turn it on too much, it starts to consume me. It's an iron furnace that starts to eat my attention. It drives up my anxiety. It drives up my worry. Uh, it drives up my my consternation with the world, and it doesn't really add anything of holiness or value. So at some level, I have to balance how much of that I even want in my life, because I don't want to worship it. I don't want to be consumed by it. So this is old man Grandpa Moses telling us, with a little taste of authenticity, don't miss what I'm going to miss. Just because I screwed up doesn't mean you have to screw up. Do it the right way. Verse 22 says, but I must die in this land. Again, another one of those points of authenticity. Moses is declaring his own imperfection. This does not sound like the guy trying to found a religion, right? It's a, he, he says there's a consequence for his sin. There's no guile, no hypocrisy with Moses. He's just human and he records himself as human when he writes his own books. So why would we listen to a human who's another screw up just like us? The answer is, if we've been reading through the whole Bible together, we were never listening to Moses. We're listening to what God said through Moses. And Moses isn't who we worship because Moses is a fallen person and he admits that right in these verses. Oh, that the Pharisees could have remembered this. Because by the time of Jesus, the Judaism had elevated Moses to this status that Moses never put himself at. And they conveniently didn't read verses like this. Moses was not a God and he wasn't to be worshipped in the first place. But the God that he served is someone we should serve to. We do this in the Christian church when we elevate Christian leaders to this prominent pedestal of a status. 
and we start to worship or we're in danger of starting to worship the Christian leader versus worshiping the God that they were trying to point us to. So when a Christian leader falls or has a sin, it should look like what we see with Moses, where he just admits his sin and he continues to serve the Lord because we weren't worshiping that person to start with. We were worshiping Christ to begin with. Beware the thought that you aren't replaceable in God's plan. God can replace you just like he replaced Moses. So unless you're better than Moses, uh, you probably have things where you're going to fall too, and you need to be public and admit it, so you're not being, you're not trying to hide it, or you're not trying to impress people with who you are. You just know that God has a plan for you, and that's grace. Uh, and he doesn't need you, but we need him, and that's submission. So we submit ourselves to God, God gives us grace. Verse 23, we see the same line again. Take heed to yourself, lest you forget the covenant the Lord your God, which he made with you and made for yourself a carved image in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden you. For Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So Moses has said kind of the same thing twice. One, he said, remember the things God has done. Put your mind on God, reflect on God, and take heed to yourself and teach these things to your grandchildren. And now we see a passage where he says, and don't go do idol worship and take heed to yourself and, and don't do those things God's forbidden you to do. Note here that it's not just idolatry. He's expanded that a little bit into verse 23, anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. So as we're about to dig into the law here, uh, it's basically kind of this big sweeping introduction and again, this is something that the Pharisees got into all the particulars and the legalistic pieces of the law. And Moses is basically giving them the law in one sentence. Don't do anything the Lord has told you not to do. If it's forbidden, just don't do it. Hebrews 12 says we have a cloud of witnesses um, that we're to be running the race. That's often quoted. In fact, I think it's one of the, the, the key hinge points of CWC at Bethel, right? There's this great cloud of witnesses that's watching you. Um, and you're supposed to turn there. Uh, and the discipline of God, like an athlete, is so that you get working on things so, you'll be ch so you won't be chastened by God. So the often quoted part of Hebrews 12 is, look at all these people that are there. You need to run the race. You need to go and do it. The not so quoted part comes right after that, saying the reason why you need to get your race on is because God's going to chasten his believers and he's going to discipline them and this is Hebrews 12, 12, if you want to read it, uh, to, to read it, legit followers of God are going to be chastened and trained. So run your race because it's going to get hard and God's going to discipline the people he loves. So uh, Hebrews 12, 14 says, look carefully or take heed to yourselves. Uh, I mean, goodness, it's like Hebrews 12 is just preaching on Deuteronomy 4, right? They're just taking the same ideas and they're working on them. Hebrews uh, even goes into don't do idols. Hebrews 15 says don't do bitterness, defilement, fornicating. It's like selling your birthright. Um, and then Hebrews, I'll get to the end of Hebrews chapter 12. In 18 verse, verses 18 through 21, it actually references Mount Sinai, which is why I'm, I think they're doing commentary on this chapter. The fire and the voice from heaven, just like Moses had them remember the fire on top of the mountain. And then it says they have to have a different mountain. So Hebrews 12 says, the people with Moses had Mount Sinai, but we have a different mountain. And I'm going to read this passage from Hebrews. I just love how it connects to this chapter. Hebrews 12, 
verses 25. This comes right after the cloud of witnesses and the happy stuff. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape him who refused who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? If the people of Israel got squished because they didn't listen, how much do you think you're going to make it when God's telling you to do things and you don't do them? Verses 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he's promised, said, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, that things which cannot be shaken might remain. Idols get shaken, politics gets shaken, academics get shaken, vanity gets wrinkly. You know, all of these things that the world has for us to follow, they all get shaken. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And then Hebrews 12, 29 gives the same logic and rationale that Moses just gave to us. Moses says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Hebrews 12, 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. That doesn't get quoted as much out of Hebrews 12. (laughs) But it's still true. If God consumes corrupt people, it stands to perfect logic that we should not be corrupt people. We should be set apart and different. And we should live our life under the same truth that the people of Israel were told to live their life. Follow the law of Deuteronomy, what's going to come for the next couple months for us. Follow these laws, because if we do them, God's consuming fire won't burn us up. The typology here is literal, (laughs) and it's familiar for the people of Israel saw Nadab and Abihu literally get burnt up by a consuming fire. This isn't a figurative language that that Moses is using here. They just had this happen. Numbers 11, if you want to reread that story, fire actually consumed these two guys. Number 16, they were giving offering with, with, without, without permission, <laughs> and they had to clean this stuff up afterwards. The people of Israel got to smell the smoke off of these charred bodies. God is a jealous God, and he doesn't want us serving things other than him. So if we say we serve the Lord, we need to understand the Lord then is a jealous God. And that's not written as a bad thing. It's written as a absolutely holy, good, and decent thing. If, for those of us that are married, we should be jealous of our spouse. They don't get to go in, in, on dates with other people. That's something we're not okay with. Uh, and we, we want to make sure we live in such a way that we hold to those truths. When you beget children and grandchildren, again, Moses' reference, repeating what he said in verse 9, and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I will call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not long prolong, you will, and you will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. God's a jealous God. If you go and serve other things, God's going to lift his hand and there's going to be destruction that happens. Think of like, how big of a deal would NASCAR be if nobody ever showed up to the races? Like the only thing that makes that a thing is people want to go see how fast cars can go. So they worship the speed of cars and they spend their money on it and they spend their time on it and they get all enthusiastic about it and they put posters up in their garage because they're not allowed in the living room. 
if no one, if everyone just up tomorrow said, we're just done with NASCAR, it would fold. And there'd be some very wealthy people in charge of NASCAR that would be very upset about whatever worldview showed up to make it so that nobody wanted to watch race cars anymore. Any sporting event has the same kind of thing. It depends on worshipers in order to give it strength in this world. In order for it to be a thing, it needs people to follow it. Moses is speaking for himself here and he warns, if I don't get to go into the land and you blow it, then you're going to get exactly what I got. You're going to get destroyed and utterly destroyed uh, is going to be what God does and it'll scatter them. Ultimately, this is what's going to happen to Israel, which is actually what 550 years later, they all get hauled off to Babylon. So then we get 18 centuries without Israel. And then in 1948, we get Israel again. And God just reforms them. Verse 27. <coughs> and the Lord will scatter you among the people and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods and work the work. It doesn't say they will worship the gods. It just says they're going to serve them. They're going to, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. You want idols, you're going to get idols. You can have all the idols you want. And God gives them as much of the world as they can handle. Verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. You will find him. And if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul, when you're in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. This is in the Psalms. It's in the prophets. It's in Revelation. We know all of this is going to happen. But when Moses is writing this, they didn't know this was going to happen. Imagine they're reading these verses as they're getting hauled off into Babylon and they're singing songs about this while they're being taken into that other country. Imagine growing up and going to your little secret Jewish Bible study school and they teach you the Lord won't forget you here. And you got kids like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and you got Daniel and they just remember this stuff when they're in the middle of these problems. And it takes about 70 years in Babylon for them to get there. But if they trust in the Lord with all their heart, mind, and soul, God will not forsake them or abandon them. What a promise. That's a condition that isn't a halfway condition. It's all in. God's with you. He's with you forever. And as soon as you turn to him, he's ready to take you back in. So this is getting to be a theme in the Bible. You're either all in or you're all out. There's either a relationship with God or there's not. There's a relationship with God and you go halfway on it. God backs off too. And then you're on your own. The heart in all your heart and all your soul. The word heart there is lavav. It means your inner will, your worship, your emotions, your feelings, and your inclinations. That's your heart. The word soul, nefesh, implies your mind, your will, and your thoughts. It is what breathes. So the thing that gives you life is your soul. The thing that is how you act out your life is your, your heart. It's your emotions and your intellect together working for the Lord God, all in. He will not forsake you, nor destroy you, nor the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. If we reach out to God, God reaches out to us. Same thing then as it is now. This is most obvious. There's a prophecy here. <laughs> Moses is predicting the future of what's going to happen, that they're going to be split up. They're going to go all over the world. They're going to be regathered into the nation. This happens after Babylon. They're brought back. Uh, under the under Cyrus, he gives them permission to go back to Jerusalem. 
They're dispersed again by the diaspora of the Romans. Uh, they're scattered all over the world. Uh, there were people all over not knowing where they went and how they went there. Most people, when their nations are destroyed, they eventually die out. Uh, there's no more Thracians left on the earth, really. We don't see a lot of uh, um, Phoenicians left on the earth. So the Israelites uniquely last for hundreds of years without a land that they call their own because they continue to hold to God with their heart and their soul. They become distinct cultures within other cultures. Today, there's around 14 million Jewish people on the earth. They have not grown from the 2 million they had here. <laughs> so that promise that their numbers will not grow has actually kind of held true. The promise that there are latter days, uh, that the Jews will still be here in the latter days, is one of the promises that's here. All right. For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like this has been heard. It's like a challenge. There's a boldness to this faith. You go ahead and see if there's anything else on the planet Earth that looks anything like this. This God speaking to people from the mountain, the, the, the plagues of Egypt, the cloud and the fire and the smoke, the Shekinah glory, the manna from heaven that sustains them in the wilderness. Is there anything that compares to that kind of God? God that can make Sarah have a baby so he can build a people out of a faithful, a faithful couple of Abraham and Sarah. And then there's a nation that gets born out of that. God that protects them in Egypt uh, and, and sets it all up so Joseph can make sure they have a place to live. Uh, is there anything like that God? Is there anything like that in any other religion on the earth? Has their God done anything like this God has? The Persians were glorious, but they're gone. Babylonians did, did great statues, but they all decayed. The Romans did nice frescoes, and some of them are still around. But the Romans are gone too. The Jews have seen all these mighty nations of the world rise up and then fall, and the Jews are still here. The empires made by humans rise and fall. The Jewish people don't. And it's not because of their own force. It's not because of the mighty Jewish army that they continue to exist. It really is a miracle that these people are still here on the earth. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the mist to the fire as you've heard it and still live? Answer to that question is no, it's rhetorical. There's no debate here speaking to people that have all had the same experience. Uh, we know our experience and Moses is talking to people that has shared experiences with what he's had. Verse 34, or did God ever try to go and make for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by the great and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Answer again is no. It's unique to all of human history. Israel is the exception to all of human history. It's almost preposterous if it wasn't for the fact that they're still here on the earth today. Right? Moses, too, has, has to remind himself of how absolutely stunning it is that this group of slave people are now a, a nation with laws and order. It says, before your eyes, at the end of verse 34. Again, eternal validity. Moses' only call to validity is what the people who are reading this book felt about what they were saying. Uh, these are not secret documents. This is not secret knowledge. Um, what's interesting, I'll, I'll say this real quick. 
Judaism is notoriously non-evangelical. It's not like there's a group of people out recruiting other people to be Jewish. So as a religion, it's not like they grow the same way other religions grow. And they never have throughout human history. Uh, there are people that become Jewish, you, but you have to come to them. It's not like they reach out and try to recruit. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with how this is a nation that's distinct. Uh, and what they want to do is raise their kids and their grandkids. And the way, the way Jewish people have stayed around is by doing that one thing that God commanded them to do. But he didn't command them to go out and reach all of the earth and teach them. He, he told them to just be an example for all of the earth to see. Um, verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other beside him. Out of heaven he let, he let you hear his voice that he might instruct you. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Therefore know this, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other Central idea here. <laughs> Love the Lord. You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord has given you for all time. David is a great narrative as we see the life of David. He literally breaks every commandment there is, except Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. God forgives everything. But this idea of idols is the one big thing Moses is kind of putting out in front. He summarizes the history, says the intention of everything in the Bible so far. He summarizes it perfectly. He's a great teacher. God loves you and he chose you. Verse 37, he brought you. God is powerful enough to bring you. Verse 38, God made you a place and God gives you things. Verse 39, consider this, really, stop and think about what God has done for you. When we look at our own lives, that's one thing we can do. Really, stop and think about your own life, where you've been, what your history is, where God has taken you from to come to this place today. If God has done that for you, if he gave you those parents, for good or bad, if he gave you those experiences, he put you in relationships with all those people. He's formed and made you and brought you to the place where you're at right now that the, so that you can see that the Lord himself is God. That's not an accident. It's no accident that he has brought you out of challenges and trials, that he has taken giants and put moved them out of your way. And it's no accident that you're exactly where God wants you to be right now. So there's a heaven above him and an earth beneath him. There's no other gods that's, that's there. Moses reveals God's absolute authority. And now the purpose of what we're doing is so that we can keep his statutes. That's a pretty good, chapter four is a pretty strong rationale for why we should care about the next 30 chapters. Because all of this is so that we can live our lives in a way God's wanting us to live our lives. So then we see the start of the law. Really, verse 41, I think the chapter break should be right here, but I'll just read it, and then we'll kind of dig in on it next week uh, when we start in on the law. Notice that Moses shifts to the third person here. He's now 
a teacher of the law. Uh, then Moses set apart three cities on this side of the Jordan towards the rising sun that the manslayer might flee there who kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in time past. And that by fleeing to one of these cities, he might live. Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manasites. So God's basically saying these three cities are going to be the cities of refuge. Uh, you can go back to that teaching if you want to. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for Moses. We thank you for what a teacher he was. We thank you for Joshua, who probably helped him write these things down. Um, Lord, we just thank you that you were faithful to the people of Israel. We thank you that you're faithful to us, uh, that when we look at our lives and we do what we're told to do, when we remember what you've done for us, Lord, we can take courage in that and we can take courage that you have a plan for us too. Uh, that you have given us clear commands. Um, Lord, And it, we are told to wait on you for those clear commands, uh, which is in itself a command for us, Lord. So help us, Lord, to wait upon the Lord. Help us to wait on you. Uh, teach us, Lord, your will. Teach us your peace in that. Help us to not presume and do things we're not supposed to do or say things or add anything to your word. Help us not to omit or to be inactive and not do things that we're supposed to not be doing. Uh, and Lord, help us to just heed to ourselves. Help us to constantly be worrying about our own purity, our own hearts, our own relationship with you, Lord, that that is our first and foremost command uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, that Lord, we are to be devoting ourselves to you in every way that we can. So Lord, teach us your ways and to help us to do that. Give us the strength to do that. Give us a, a hearts that desire more of you and less of this world. And that we can just be wholly committed to you because this earth is going to shake. Uh, and Lord, everything that is not of you is going to be shaken. Uh, so Lord, help us to continue to build and, and cleave to those things that will not be shaken. Uh, that we can be uh, with you as all things end. That your consuming fire, Lord, will... Uh, burn away those things in our lives that we don't need uh, and that the things you've built and created will be the things that remain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now all the photos come back. Okay, we got a super small group again. So I think that's kind of fun because we can just kind of talk as a group. Um, and that was a... If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.